For the next two Sundays, we're leaving Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and skipping to the last week of Jesus' life, reflecting on his entrance into Jerusalem today, his death on Friday, and his resurrection next Sunday, as it is told by Matthew. So we've already read this passage, and I just wanted to point out two things uh, that, that I want us to make sure that we catch and see here as Matthew tells us. The first thing for us to catch is in Matthew uh, 21, verse 10. It says, The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? they asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. You see, there are two crowds here with Jesus. There are those who, like Jesus, have come from Galilee to worship at Jerusalem for their most holy day the Passover, when the people remember the great deliverance of Israel from the global superpower of their day, Egypt. And it's also the day that they look forward to the promised deliverance of the Messiah or Christ or King who would set them free from the domination they are currently experiencing under this new global superpower, Rome. And the crowd from Galilee knows who Jesus is. They've heard him talk about the great present and coming kingdom of God in which there will be a great reversal for the poor and the oppressed. They have seen the power of this Jesus as he has miraculously fed them and healed them and cast out the demons who held people in oppression and fear and terror. And so this crowd celebrates Jesus. There's an anticipation that Jesus is going to do something big. And then there's the crowd of Jerusalem, the city. Uh, For most of these people, they probably haven't heard about Jesus. But now there's this loud group of peasants from the country declaring that they found the Messiah that they've all been waiting for. And this, Matthew says, throws the whole crowd of Jerusalem into an uproar again. This is now the second time that Jesus has caused the city of Jerusalem some disturbance. It happened the first time in Matthew 2 when the Magi came looking for the new king of the Jews. And now a little over 30 years later, Jesus is shaking up the city again. And actually, shaking up the city is probably the best translation of the Greek word translated in the NLT as uproar. It shares the same root as the word seismic, that earthquake, a shaking. Uh, And Matthew will use this same Greek word three more times uh, in the next few chapters. Matthew will tell us at the moment of Jesus' death that the curtain of the sanctuary of the temple is torn from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split apart. That's the word there. And then once more, Matthew 28, 2, at the resurrection of Jesus, it says, suddenly there was a very great earthquake. The same Greek word three times here in the last few chapters of Matthew. All of Jerusalem is shaken as Jesus enters into the city. And that earthquake of the arrival of the Messiah will reverberate through the cross and into the resurrection. When Jesus appears, Jesus shakes things up. Which in our chapter here is actually the first thing he does. He enters into the city. He shakes up all of Jerusalem and he goes straight to the temple and shakes up all the religious leaders and their practices. What we didn't read in the passage 
is the next part. But Jesus clears out the corruption that is happening in the temple. And he says to the religious leaders, the scripture declare, my temple will be called the house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. A den of thieves, of course, is not where thieves rob people or exploit them. The common English Bible translate this, translates this passage accurately when it says that the, you have turned the temple into a hideout for crooks. They think that they are safe, that God will protect them, that their evil hearts and deeds are, are not going to be judged because they go to the temple. But Jesus is shaking things up. Jesus may arrive humbly on a donkey, not on the war horse at the head of an army, but we would be deeply mistaken to think that Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem was anything less than the earth-shattering than it was anything less than earth-shattering for those who were there. And I think that should invite us to ponder what the arrival of Jesus in our own lives looks like. Do we hope that inviting Jesus into our lives means that God now just covers over our sin and our complicity with evil, our distortions of desire? I don't think so. The arrival of Jesus in our lives, I believe, shakes us to the core. It reveals the brokenness and the corruption of our heart. It invites us to surrender to the restorative, healing work of Jesus in our lives. Far too often we want Jesus arriving humbly on a donkey, full of peace and acceptance, when Actually, Jesus is arriving with a stone-splitting, ground-shaking force of an earthquake, ready to shake us and change us and reform us and transform us to our very core of our being. The second thing I've been thinking about is this story, is this part of the story in verse 8. Here we read, Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and put them on the road and Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people all around him were shouting praise God for the son of David blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord praise God and highest in heaven and so there are two images that come to mind when I think about this scene especially the part where the people are taking off their clothes and throwing them on the ground the first image I have is this the, the scene of a hat trick at a hockey game that moment when some player scores his three goals on the ice or her three goals on the ice, and the fans take off their hats and they throw them out onto the ice. And I read this week that a hat trick is one of hockey's most revered traditions, celebrating skill and performance of one of your team's players. New fans to the game should be aware of this long-standing and time-honored tradition. Don't mess this up. And friends, I just bought a new hat. I paid something like $50 for my new hat. So like a hat is not cheap. And I don't care who the player is or how much joy I have watching the Kings win another Stanley Cup. There is no way that I am taking off my hat and throwing it on the ice so that some millionaire hockey player feels good about themselves. The second image that came to my mind was that of a youth group game I used to play when I was in high school. And they would get us to take off all our shoes and we'd throw them into a big pile. The youth leader would uh, mess them all up and make this big pile of shoes. And then they would say, go, and we would all dive into this pile and dig and try to pull out our, our own two shoes and put them on again. And whoever got it, I'm on first one. And so then this image is, is this big crowd, maybe a few hundred, maybe a few thousand. I really have no idea how big the crowd is. Um, 
but they're worth enough that people are noticing, right? And all these people are there. They're pulling off their jackets and their cloaks. They're laying them on the ground. And my really cheap, really practical side is like, so like, how are you getting your coat back? And I, I remember, now I want you to remember that this is a group of people who have traveled probably about a week to get to Jerusalem. It's likely that these people didn't own more than one cloak anyway, and it's very unlikely that they packed a bunch of extra ones on their travel. And so these people are taking off their one cloak and throwing it down. Uh, my wife Nikki w- will tell you that I already own too many hats. Um, but I'm not going to throw one of them onto the ice at a hat trick. Now I wonder what would it take for me to throw my only coat on the ground, to lay it on the road. These people believe that Jesus is really their long-awaited king. They think, if this is really our king come to deliver us, then my coat means nothing to me, and I will lay it out for him. There's an element of sacrifice here, a a jubilation to be sure, but also an acknowledgement of the value and exceptionalism of the one for which they lay out their cloaks. The people celebrate for a king. They make their sacrifices of praise. But the reality must be named that Jesus will not be the king that they desire. And that by the end of the week, the crowd will have turned on him and they will not be celebrating his enthronement in a palace, but the few who remain faithful will watch him as he is enthroned on a pagan cross just outside city limits. The theologian N.T. Wright asks us if we've ever noticed that we often turn to God when things are really bad. He notes that there's an uptick in church attendance whenever things get really rocky in the world. When things go wrong, we turn to God and we want God and we want God now. We want God to respond to us now in the way that we want. Give me that job now, God. Heal my child now, God. Make my accuser go away now, God. And sometimes then we'll begin to bargain with him. God, if you heal me, I'll go to church every Sunday for a year. or Well, at least two months. If you give me that job, Lord, then I'll start giving money to the church. If you free me from this addiction, I will do whatever you want. I'll even go as a missionary to Swift Current. The crowd's motives for celebrating Jesus are not the right motives. They place their expectations on Jesus and want him to fix things the way they want. The beauty of Jesus, as N.T. Wright points out, is that Jesus does not wait for us to get our motives right. Jesus will take the opportunity that we give him and he will come and make things right. Jesus takes the opportunities we give him And he makes things right. In this case, the people want deliverance. They want freedom. They want liberation of the new king. And Jesus takes that desire and he answers it. He just answers it in a much deeper way than they expected. Jesus doesn't just save the people from Roman domination and occupation. 
He saves them from the domination and power of sin and the evil one. Jesus doesn't just save the people from the shame of losing their promised land and living as subjected people. He will deliver them and us from all shame. All those voices of shame that speak of our lack of worth, the value of goodness, all those voices that call to mind our failures or the failures that we live with because of others, Jesus silences them. Jesus doesn't just deliver them from slavery to a global economic superpower. He delivers them and us from the power and slavery of death. The earth-shattering reality of Jesus' entry into our world at Christmas continues to shake as Jesus rides into Jerusalem and will quake at his death and culminates in the seismic quake of the resurrection of Jesus, which will change everything. It alters the course of the world and of our lives. The arrival of Jesus alters the very course and being of our lives. And so the question is, are you ready? Are you ready to lay down your cloak and make your sacrifice and allow the king to enter into your world, your life, your heart, and mind? Are you ready to be shaken?